You're listening to Path of Love with David Youngren. To learn more about us, visit pathoflovecenter.com. Welcome back to the Path of Love. We're speaking with David Youngren about his book, Awakening to I Am Love. We're on chapter nine today, Unfolding Creation. In chapter nine, I believe this chapter is, as David will tell you, probably the essence of the book. So let's get in and speak with David. It's always a delight. Well, let's talk about the unfolding creation. In this chapter nine, you speak a lot about science and uh, how it was not exactly your favorite class in high school, but it seems like in this chapter, uh, you learned to really uh, adopt, admire, and love science. Is that true? I, I think it's very true. And of course, to preface my remark, why I probably didn't like high, uh, science in high school so much, maybe for s- several different reasons, and I give a few different reasons, and some of them may not make sense, but I think a lot had to do with my religious belief, my faith. And so, of course, as you know, I was raised in a very Christian home, and there was something that we kind of learned at a very early age, and that was to not trust science, because somehow or another, it contradicted our faith. That's what we were led to believe. So in that sense, we had this like fear, you know, it was almost like the desire to know the truth had already been hijacked by fear. And, but as I come to learn later on, of course, faith and science were not either or propositions. They are merely different lenses by which to look at reality. And that is why it's so beautiful. And that's why I decided to devote an entire chapter to science and specifically evolution and how it relates to Jesus, Christ, and uh, the, you know, God. And so to me, this is incredibly fascinating. Well, let's jump into it and talk about evolution. Um, In science and especially evolution, um, it's represented was, when it's represented in a manner with church, it doesn't really coexist together in some churches. Um, Why why is that? Or, Or how could you explain that? To most people, because like myself, who were raised in church, there is embedded into our beliefs a fear of science because we're afraid that what we believe, what our religious and Christian beliefs or Judeo-Christian beliefs are gonna be proven untrue. And so there is a lot of negative feelings about science for that particular reason. And just even with the fact of, you know, the creation story versus evolution, the creation story, of course, is something that I would say the majority, especially of evangelical churches, have uh, propagated uh, and believe that, in other words, the earth was created in uh, six days, or the universe was created in six days, and, you know, and that, and that, of course, is not the evolutionary side of the story. So, so many Christians, therefore, are very uh, afraid or fearful of engaging in any conversation and discussion about evolution. But to me, 
I think is a little hypocritical sometimes, and I don't say that is form of judgment, but I would think for an outsider, I mean, I can speak for someone who's been raised in the, in the Judeo-Christian uh, world, that it, it would seem to me that it's a little hypocritical of us to somehow now deny science to the degree that we have, because we're using science all the time, and you know that. We're using science when we get on an airplane. We're using science when we communicate right now, you and I, we're using science. And the people who are listening, they're using science by listening to us. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me. I never, it never ceases to amaze me that I can be in another part of the world. I can be in South Africa and speak to you with seeing you through a camera, through a lens. And that is because of science. Even the life expectancy has increased by uh, three decades, an average of three decades around the world because of science. So for us to just somehow or another um, dismiss science is not the right way. So rather, I think the better approach is then to look at what is evolution? What is science? And what's the difference between science and faith? And I think that that's really what I'm trying to communicate. Faith is mystical. Faith is spiritual. Faith considers the deeper meaning of life, but science studies how the world works through observation and, and experimentation. And what I've come to realize, and I think this is really the exciting point, that evolution is really the spirit in action, moving us toward a new creation, the formation of Christ-centric consciousness in all humanity. And that is really what we're talking about in this chapter. Wow. And one of the things you used is unfolding creation. Um, and so can you elaborate on that term, unfolding creation? What I'm referring to when I speak to, when I speak about the unfolding creation is that there, there's a hint of an evolutionary process in the Bible. And that's what I call unfolding creation because it, it merges the Bible with evolution and merges the Bible with science. And for, for someone who has come out of the church, uh, someone who's come out of the, the you know, Judeo-Christian background, that fascinated me. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, so that's really what I'm talking about. In, in some ways, I guess science dealt with biology and physics of the evolving universe, while Christ presents the meaning behind it and ultimately the ultimate destiny for humanity and the universe. You see, it really begins for me with a few questions. What's the purpose of the universe? Is there a God? And if so, if there is a God, which I obviously believe, uh, what is the purpose of evolution? Because I believe in evolution. There's enough proof of it that, that it happens. So what then is the purpose of evolution? And, and what is the end what is the vision? If, if God created the universe and he's creating the universe or continues to create the universe through a process of evolution, where are we going? Where are we heading? And what's the purpose of it? So that leads us to evolution, the spirit in action. Uh, you explained a lot about evolution and about the background in science um, and how um things were formed, um, how solar systems were formed. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? About science, tell us that the universe began about 13.7 billion years ago with an event called the Big Bang. It's quite interesting actually, because they some suggestions have been now, and I found this is very fascinating. And of course, this is just a theory, but 
that concurrently to the birth of this universe, a mirror image of another universe or an anti-universe was birthed that runs backward in time and is made of antimatter instead of matter. And there is a whole reason for that and that I won't get into. But people say, well, this is really weird. You actually believe all that stuff. Well, to me, it's not a matter whether I believe it or not. And, and that's not the point. The point is that I wanted to communicate that this incredible universe, this thing we call life, is so mysterious, is so thrilling, it's bizarre, but you know, it's life. And so when people start asking questions, can this happen? Do you believe in that? Do you think that's possible? Essentially what I tell people is I believe anything is possible because what I see in the universe is so extraordinary. So you say um, a better term for evolution is spirit in action. Inherent in all things is an attraction toward what lies ahead, a deeper knowledge and awareness of the whole. So think about it this way. Most scientists believe that the Big Bang happened three minutes into the Big Bang, you know, particles bonded with other particles and formed into atoms. What, you know, so it, it started as a point of singularity, but within three minutes, particles bonded with other particles and it formed into atoms. And a few hundred of thousands of years later, these atoms combined with other atoms and formed into molecules. And then if you move ahead another 9 billion years, our solar system was formed. And then what we see here, molecules then merge with other molecules and form cells. And reaching around the 13 billion mark, these cells united with other cells, which eventually shaped into systems that then developed into animals and humans. And so what is fascinating, and this is why I made that statement, what is fascinating is that our the universe is always evolving toward more complex forms of life. And the evolution takes place whenever previously existing entities unite. As you mentioned, as entities combine, the universe becomes a self-transcending reality that keeps moving beyond itself in complexity, depth, and unity. So when I talk about evolution, what I'm saying is this, the evolution is a spirit in action, the ground of being, that which is not visible. God is not visible. It's God is the whole. God is in all things. The Father's above all, through all, and in all. This is what spiritual texts are saying. So the, the ground of being, everything arises, form arises out of formlessness. So what I'm saying is that the evolution is the spirit in action. It is the spirit birthing a new form and form that is deeper in knowledge and awareness of the whole. So when talking about evolution, we're merely affirming that progress is the spirit in action, working through us to develop in full maturity, uh, where we are evolving biologically because we deepen in consciousness. Is that how it's explained? Yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the quote from the book there. So what? think about that God's essence what what and this is really what i'm trying to communicate what is the vision where we're going what is the omega point we know the alpha uh, aleph bet or alpha is the beginning is the name of the father we discussed it in the last episode but the ending point 
is the omega. And what is the omega point in history? Well, it is the emergence of God in form, the maturity of God in form, where we are a true expression, where a true expression of the divine, and where selfless, universal, and unconditional love is our consciousness, where we see each other, where we see ourselves in each other is the Christ-centered consciousness that Jesus demonstrated when he said, I'm in the Father. But he also said, I'm in the naked. I'm in the thirsty. I'm in the prisoner. I'm in the foreigner. I'm in the sick. So in a way, being conscious is not just being aware of yourself, but experiencing, feeling, and participating in the whole, in the universe, and in all people. It's seeing and perceiving life not, as I've put here, and this is a quote from my book, not through the lens of the egoic, selfish, self-absorbed lens of what Christians refer to the, as the first Adam, but through the inclusive, self-emptying, egoless, non-dual, unifying, and love-pervading lens of the second Adam. And that's really what I'm trying to communicate here. So you say Christ is more than just a singular person in history. Christ is unfolding of the divine invisible matter. So who is Christ? Good question. And I, I want to get into the Bible here because I think it's good for my Christian friends to see this, especially because we have a certain perception. And if you ask most people who Christ is, they would say, well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the last name of Jesus. Well, that is not actually true, not according to the Bible. In fact, the word Christ is the Hebrew word for it is Messiah or Messiah, Messiah, but then translated into English as Messiah. So the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word of a Hebrew word, which is Messiah. Now you have to understand the traditions of Messiah. Messiah, according to the Midrash Torah, would come and they were all looking for the coming of the Messiah. We read this in the Judean tradition in Judaism that they were looking for the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah will come, there'll be no more war, no more conflict, no more hunger on earth. But everyone will be occupied with knowing and being aware of God. That was what they believed. And, and what I found really fascinating, and I, I usually tell this sometimes when I speak in, to audiences and they kind of laugh at me, in the Bible, it actually talks about when the, the Messiah or Christ would come, then the wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the goat would lie down together. And the lions would no longer eat meat. They would be on a vegan diet. Imagine that. And they would eat straw. The, the, in other words, there will be such a radical transformation of the earth when the earth will be filled with an awareness of God. So when the Christ would come, that's what would happen. When Jesus showed up on the scene, their whole attitude was, well, the Christ must come, but he's going to come and be a military force and drive out the enemy because they've been in captive for 430 years in Babylon. And then they moved to what we today call Israel. And, and now they were still under the Roman empire. So they, they wanted to drive out the military. So they were looking for a military leader. And of course, that's the egoic mind. They believe that you got to drive out evil with good and by killing and all of that. But the problem is when you kill and you go to war and you, when you get into conflict and you, you, you try to win, you become that which you hate. 
to another person. So, you know, you become evil to another person. So, so Jesus comes around and he has a totally different message. And this is what I'm referring to when I talk about Christ. Jesus comes around and you jump in here, by the way, because I'm doing a lot of talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> but Jesus comes around and he presents a different vision of God. He talks about God in parental terminology. And he talks about God as a selfless and ego-emptying love that unites and makes all things whole. And he starts hanging out with what society called the least. He hangs out with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, people of opposing religions, and even the soldiers of the occupying military force. And they were all love. They were all, you know, he had great compassion for them. He was very giving. He was very generous. He was healing toward them. And the funny thing is that the religious people who were supposed to be the standard bearers of truth, he was harshest on them. Why would he be the harshest on them? I think that's a good logical question to ask, but why would he be so harsh on them? Because they interpreted God through the egoic lens. They interpreted their sacred scripture through the egoic lens. So Jesus then debated with them scriptures to get them to see the futility of the ego. Because that's ultimately what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. We're talking about the ego. And so Jesus then argued with them. In other words, and the reason why he did that was he was trying to strip away at the egoic mindset so that they will come to a point of grace when they recognize, as we talked about last time, they would recognize their need for grace when the egoic mind would die and they would waken again to a, a new kind of life. The the egoic mind um, in those days or even in today, um, your definition of Jesus in, a, in today's day is an open door for a man or a woman that would be harshly or morally judged in today's day, hanging out with the tax collector, hanging out with the prostitutes, hanging out with those types of people, but showing love, not participating in maybe what their actions are, but showing love. How does that relate to how someone could live today? Well, Jesus is an example here. And this is what we, I think when I'm trying to communicate, there is an evolution that is taking place. There is a toward that Christ-centric consciousness that we have been talking about throughout these episodes. And that Christ-centric consciousness is so well represented in Jesus. You see it in him where, you know, he extended forgiveness even when he's on the cross. Forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Uh, in other words, he was acknowledging that they were unconscious of their deepest and truest self and acted contrary to what they really were at the very core. And so Jesus just showed this other way of living. Jesus showed this other way of, of existing in this world. And I think... That's the first step for us in learning more about what we can become, what all of us have embedded within us, what is the ultimate destiny for all our lives to awaken to that Christ-centric consciousness so that our lives can be improved, so that our world can be improved, so that this world can become a better place that is caring, that is loving, that is compassionate, that is forgiving, that is kind to all where we tear down the walls between us, where we tear down the things that we are disagree about, where we begin to see 
each other in we see ourselves in each other and uh, and i think that's the message that we see jesus communicating here we said paul then comes to an incredible conclusion that when the eyes of the heart are enlightened then our perception will change so being christ-centric basically makes us completely aware and opens our eyes to change in our mind, in our hearts, in our bodies, in our cells, um, have some sort of evolution in our body? Well, what is fascinating, and I think this, what, what you're raising is, is a great point that I want to see if I can just preface a bit before I, I, before I answer it, and I preface a lot of things here. So, <laughs> but... Um, Paul takes this whole idea of Christ to not just to be about Jesus. He certainly affirms that Jesus is the Christ, but he begins to talk about that the Christ is, is not just for, for Jesus, that Christ is an all and is all, that, that this has been hidden for generations and generations. This has been hidden that Christ is in you. And what, what, what is he referring to when he talks about Christ? Well, he says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So we're talking about that the ground of being. We're talking about that which, you know, the spiritual aspect, consciousness, that which we are at the very core. And you and I, we had this discussion earlier, the mind of God, consciousness, and all of that. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, when there's full maturity, when when there's full maturity, when we move from the egocentric to the ethnocentric to the world-centric, and now we have awakened to the Christ-centric where we begin to see, as Jesus did, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, you are in me, I'm in you, and in reference to everyone, the whole world. Then, then what we begin to see is really the vision of God from the very outset. In other words, God wanted to express himself in the universe, in physical form. So the evolution is a movement toward this point in history where we begin to realize that God is in each and every one of us. And the vision of God, the blueprint of God is that we would awaken, that our eye, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would see, that we would see our true essence the very essence of god within us and then that that would begin to manifest that we will be an expression of that love that compassion that generosity that goodness in all people rather than fighting about uh politics rather than fighting about uh, religious beliefs rather than fighting about races rather than fighting about so many things that we fight about but awakening within and then we would be, as the Midrash Torah prophesied, we would be aware of God in all things. And I think you explain it as, if I'm as conscious of you as I am of myself, and that consciousness is anchored in an all-encompassing love, then the very essence of God would be on full display as Christ in and through me yeah you know it's amazing when you think about it because 
it's interesting actually going back to your previous question before I kind of preface what you just talked about here now to, to again, by going back to your previous question, when the eyes of your heart is enlightened, Paul talks about that. When you're enlightened to this reality of Christ, this new conscience is what happens is then you, there is no more Gentile. He says, there's no Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian. And he uses all kinds of different descriptions here. That was relevant for people back then. He says, but Christ is all and in all. But think about this, if we put this in a modern context, and this is what you just made reference to. Think about when we no longer regard one another based on gender, race, religion, sexuality, nationality, party affiliation, education, social status, and so on. If I'm as conscious of you as I am on myself, that's what you just referred to. Then that consciousness is anchored in all encompassing love. The very essence of God is in full display in and through us. It's kind of interesting to think of a world that way when majority of the world has never, ever looked at anything like that. And you have people judging you day in and day out on every decision that you make the style of clothes that you wear to the, the party you represent to the male or female or non, you know, binary. I mean, it just, you're judged constantly. And it seems like it's very unrealistic. And that's probably the wrong word to get to this point, but it's possible. Absolutely. And, and this is what we have to understand. There's a movement. You're, you're a lot younger than me, Marcus, but if you live as many years as me, <laughs> sound like my dad now. Uh, if you lived as many years as, as I have, then you realize how much the world has changed. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, uh, having like this little thing when you actually dialed a dial phone, you know, and, and now you have actual cell phones. You can speak to somebody and, and have the picture. And, you know, you, ne you never even use the phone nowadays. Everything uh -oh. is FaceTime or WhatsApp oh, or something like that. But a I, I rotary phone, a rotary phone, rotary phone. That's exactly. <laughs> and then we were like really reached a whole new level of technology. And when we had these touch phones, you know, like touch mm -hmm. button phones, and that was like, oh, this is so exciting. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, yeah, it, it may seem like it's an impossibility, but at the same time, I, what I've seen, there's already an awakening taking place. We've seen this. I think, for example, you think about how the world was very ethnocentric. And then, you know, when Martin Luther King came along and during the whole 60s, there was a major shift. Now, some people are still not there, right? But overall, the general populace have moved far from what it was in the 1950s before we had this revolution of sort that uh, Martin Luther King became the voice of in so many ways, and other people as well. But so we've seen a, a huge transition, and I think we will continue to see that. So if you actually just look at it from, from year to year, yeah, it may be possible overall to see, but if you look at the history, the course of history, the trajectory of history is that we're becoming more loving and compassionate. Think about it. 200 years ago, slavery was the norm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And 100 years ago, whatever, a little over 100 years ago, women could not vote. So we see that there is a progression. There is always a progression that is more inclusive, that is more accepting, that is more putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes, that is more empathetic toward others. And I think that will continue. This is also not just something that we talk about on a grand scale, but can also happen in each and every one of us. So talking about biological, your next uh, subtitle is not victims of our human biology. Um, So you talk about even thoughts impacting our physiology. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, you know, they say that, and we know that our thoughts determine how well we age, how long we live, our appearance and our health. Now, it's not the only determining factor. Of course, our genes make a difference. People say, well, it's all genetic. It is both genetic, but it also is uh, thoughts um, have a huge impact, impact on us. I mean, they did a survey with two, a pair of identical twins. One developed asthma and the other one did not because they still have the same identical genetic material, but their thoughts altered their genetic expression. So we see this, and we also learn from neuroscience that the brain has plasticity, plasticity and is malleable and goes through changes moment by moment based on your frame of mind. So you know that if you're constantly sad and constantly in depression, you can tell them when people are like that because they age a lot quicker. You can see it in people when they've gone through a lot of hardships. And when a person is very positive, is very upbeat, that has very healthy, you can see how their well-being is so much better. So, I mean, there are so many different proofs of this. And, and I use a few examples here in the book that we can get into if you want. Yeah, you also use the phrase gray matter. So I wanted to have someone have you explain what gray matter is before we get into that. Well, I'm not too sure I can give a good description, but but I, the, one of the examples I use in here is is about 79 taxi drivers in London that underwent an MRI scan throughout a period of four years. And the f- study found that the more time the cab driver spent on the job, the more the gray matter, which is a sign of increased activity and ultimately more intelligence, the gray matter in their brain increased and enlarged the hippocampus. And the hippocampus, of course, is the spatial memory lobe in their brain. And that regulates memories and navigational pathways. So the structure of the brain, this is fascinating, the structure of the brain changed because they were driving all the time and they had to learn new things. So gray matter uh, increased in their brain. In other words, more intelligence increased in their brain. So we see through that, that's just one example of how our brains are malleable and we can continue to evolve even in, in our lifespan. And yeah, I used the phrase gray matter because um, you were talking about how, um, and I'll read this quote, it's, and you're probably going to preface it as well, but <laughs> your true self, which manifest during uh, a practice such as um, compassionate mindfulness is the internal spirit that undergirds all things. But then you move into, uh, when you move beyond your mind to place a pure awareness of the divine union that permeates the universe, you gain the mind of Christ that is conscious of this oneness with God and all of creation. 
the structure of your brain is then also altered, creating new neural connections and increasing gray matter. Can you elaborate on that? Well, what I'm saying here, of course, is that the more we learn about the brain, we can see that, for example, beliefs, uh, you can even, you know, the placebo effect that can generate actually endogenous molecules, which can change our blood chemistry, which then can suppress pain. And we know that meditation actually reduces the size of the amygdala lobe of the brain that controls fear, stress, and anxiety. So what I'm saying here is, is when you actually come to that point of meditation and you become aware, come to that place of pure awareness, pure consciousness, when you become in touch with that dimension with you that is one with God, when you do that during meditation, when you're just aware, you have this sense of presence, your mind is not all over the place. The egoic mind that is trapped in a continuous story about I, me, and mine, about you, whether it's emotionally, whatever it is, that, that is so focused on self, suddenly you're just aware. You kind of gain the, uh, you gain the, the, the vision of God. You see as God sees. And when that happens, it begins to transform your brain. Literally, it transforms your brain. It changes the structure of your brain, and, and, and it creates new, as I said, new positive neural connections and increases your gray matter. And what that does, which I find interesting, that they have taken people who are practicing, for example, it took a 7,000 study in Germany, that people who practice this meditation and, and believed in this oneness, actually, their life satisfaction was drastically improved. So there's no... There's nothing but benefit, it seems like, to your cells, to your body, to your way of life, your walk, than to get rid of that egoic mind and be more Christ-centric. I mean, this book completely explains that. Why would you choose any other way? Exactly. And at the same time, it starts with a desire. You cannot manufacture this. You cannot say, well, I'm going to be Christ conscious today. I'm going to forget the ego because you can't. You cannot just shut off the ego. All that you can do is to become more present. You can become more in touch with the your inner part, your innermost being. Go beyond thoughts. Go deeper than thoughts. Just becoming conscious, becoming aware, becoming aware of the kingdom of God within you, as Jesus talks about, that dimension within you that is one with God and with all things. And the more you spend time in that kind of a quiet meditation, what happens is in, in this place of stillness, the more time you spend in that stillness, and it doesn't just have to be like you're sitting with your legs crossed and you're sitting with your eyes closed. My meditation sometimes is this, is just sitting and looking out into the sky and looking out, but without making any judgment, without thought, just observing, just being present, just being aware. And the moment I'm aware of it, I just feel this incredible peace and love and grace because in a way I'm, I'm aware of God. I'm aware of God within me, but also within all things. And when that happens, it, it continues to improve and benefit our lives. That doesn't mean that you're going to live forever because that very thought could, you know, um, I'm going to be 
563 years old. Uh, that's not what it means. But it means that even when eventually, when your body is no longer present, you're still, your spirit, your consciousness, there is a sense of aliveness that is eternal, that will always live on, and that is always in oneness with God. It's really interesting how this whole chapter was a lot about evolution and evolving. And every point you made in here from Christ to who is Christ to how um, the human biology works is all focused on evolving. And I think what you pointed out earlier, and I think in the early question about the egoic mind, how the egoic mind keeps us trapped and is so destructive and is the reason why there is so much conflict and stress and tension and stress leads to sickness and leads to all kinds of dysfunction in our bodies. The more we come to that point of awakening, awakening to the presence within, to the Christ within, to this Christ-centered consciousness, the Christ, the union that we have with God and one another, the more we will see a transformation of the earth. And it's interesting what Paul said, you know, we're going back again to the Bible, but so many people have never seen this. You know, Paul said that all of creation is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the children of God or the sons of God. And it actually says in the original text, it says the sons of God. And the word son here, there's several words used in Hebrew for son. And the word for son that Paul uses is the mature sons. And what he meant by that was another understanding of the word son. And I get into this later on in later chapters, the word son was in reference to, it was a common concept back in the days, but it was in reference to someone who exhibited, a human who exhibited uh, the, the divine qualities. And so what is being said here is that the, all the earth, all the animal life, the earth, everything is eagerly awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God, you and I coming to full maturity where we are a tourist expression of the divine through our form, through our mind, through our intellect, through everything that we do, it will transform us and it will bring healing to all. And I, I completely understand that. And that was, that was a, a great way to explain that completely. Just, I mean, I, it's kind of more understandable than the, the vegan lion. Um, and the, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I completely understand what you're saying. Yeah. And so that, that's the revolution, right? Now you begin to understand, okay, well, there is a purpose for this evolution. We are evolving towards something. Um, yeah. It is, it's really quite interesting when you begin to see and understand a spiritual text, when you read science, and you can see, oh, there is a symmetry here. There is something here that connects these ideas. This is not just opposing ideas and principles, but no, there are actually, there's something here that actually describes the universe and the evolution that we're all part of. Well explained, well explained. Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you in the next chapter, The Heart of Transformation. 
And um, again, I encourage everybody to pick up the book, Awakening to I Am Love. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast of Path of Love with David Youngren. This podcast is produced by the Path of Love Center, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, and sharing it with a friend. Together, we can grow an inclusive community around the transformational work of love. To learn more about Path of Love and get daily wisdom seeds sent to your email inbox, visit pathoflovecenter.com. You can also download David Youngren's guided audio meditation, Healing Stillness, for free at our website. From all of us at Path of Love, may love, joy, and peace be with you always.